the text for our sermon this Lord's Day. It's from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 25, as we continue our series through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 6, verse 25, where we read these words. Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. Before I begin the sermon this Lord's Day, I want to make it perfectly clear to all that this sermon is not intended for some of us. It is intended for all of us. It is intended for the ministers. It is intended for the elders. It is intended for the members of the congregation. It is intended for the women. It is intended for the men. It is intended for the older. It is intended for the younger amongst us. So let none of us exclude ourselves today as we hear the word of God preached from this particular text. We speak today of the hidden sin of lust, which we all go to great lengths to conceal from one another understandably so. This seems to be one of those sins that we are even ashamed to speak of before others until it finally becomes so aggravated in our lives that it has led us captive not only in our minds and affections but in our behavior and actions as well. Then it is no longer buried within our hearts but has so expressed itself outwardly that we cannot keep it a secret any longer. Although it is a sin which we would prefer to avoid addressing publicly for that very reason that we would prefer to avoid addressing it publicly, it is a sin which we must not avoid addressing from the pulpit. For such secret sins will not be mortified in our lives if we avoid them because they are merely embarrassing to us. Such hidden sins, dear ones, will not be crucified if ministers will not preach against them and help the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ to overcome them by taking these hidden sins out of the darkness in which they cloak themselves and rather exposing them to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps some may think that lost is not a sin if there is neither intent nor outward expression to fulfill those desires. For in such cases, so some wickedly reason, one has exercised supposed self-control in not fulfilling the very desires of his flesh. The Church of Rome unites hands with most unbelievers today in promoting such a false view of lust. And that's the reason why I heard recently a Romish priest openly acknowledge in a public interview that his own personal sexual orientation is homosexual. That is, he desires homosexual relationships. But he supposedly cleared himself of wrong by saying he restrains himself from engaging, however, in homosexual relationships. Because he does not intend to do so, nor actually do so, it is not sin to merely desire to do so. I've heard even and read so-called Christian counselors 
say that it is an acceptable therapy for those married couples who have difficulty in their intimate life together to pretend or to fantasize in their imaginations that they are being intimate with some male or female sex symbol. Again, this proceeds from the abominable premise that lust in the imagination is not sinful if there is no intent or act to fulfill one's desires. All such pastors or elders or counselors, I would propose and submit to you are false shepherds and will stand before God to give an account for their encouraging people to break the Tenth Commandment and making it acceptable to lust after someone to whom they are not married. However, we have authoritatively declared unto us in the very last of God's Ten Commandments, this one, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or for that matter, thy neighbor's husband nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Exodus 20, verse 17. Now the actual act of adultery is already forbidden in the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. In Exodus 20, verse 14. Thus the tenth commandment does not refer to the sinful actions of adultery, but to the sinful desires that even fall short of the intention and action which lead to adultery. The Hebrew word used here for covet literally means desire, not intent. It means to take pleasure in another man's wife in your desires or another woman's husband in your desires, thoughts, and imaginations. This very desire God declares to be sinful and contrary to his most holy law. Furthermore, consider the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, where we read these words. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And the words of the Apostle Paul as well should be considered in the same light in Romans chapter 7, verse 7, where we read, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Dear ones, let us not be deceived as we begin our study of the sin of lust today. Let us be quick to acknowledge that the lusts of our sinful hearts are wicked and do deserve the eternal wrath and condemnation of God as much as if we had intended them with our will or actually fulfilled them with our body. But for the grace of God and the forgiveness of all such sins through faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior, we would suffer the torments, the eternal torments of hell for the lusts 
of our flesh. From our text in Proverbs 6.25, let us consider the, together these two questions. Seek to answer these two questions from our text. The first question is this. What is it we are not to lust? And secondly, what are we to do in order to avoid lust? First of all, then, what is it we are not to lust? <clears throat> the subject of the Tenth Commandment in forbidding all coveting, lust, and all immoderate desires is exceedingly broad. The Tenth Commandment forbids, in the breath of that commandment, all discontentment with whatever the Lord has brought our way. <clears throat> Ultimately, the Tenth Commandment forbids our corrupt nature, the very corrupt nature that we have inherited from Adam. The Tenth Commandment itself forbids, from which all sinful desires proceed. And, and the Tenth Commandment requires of us a new nature of righteousness, from which all holy desires proceed. In other words, in other words, the Tenth Commandment forbids original sin. The Tenth Commandment forbids original sin and requires original righteousness. Now specifically, we are focusing our attention this Lord's Day upon one aspect of lust. I've just described the breadth of that commandment and all that it takes in coveting of various kinds. But from our text, we're focusing upon one aspect of coveting, namely lust. Namely that which is directed in a sexual manner toward one to whom we are not married. Here in Proverbs 6.25, we are prohibited by God through Solomon from lusting after the beauty of one to whom we are not married. Again, the first part of that verse says, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart. For it is one thing, dear ones, to observe and acknowledge that a woman who is not your wife is beautiful, or a man who is not your husband is handsome, and another thing to lust after her, or to lust after him in your heart. Well, what is the difference, you may ask, between acknowledging the beauty of a man or a woman as opposed to lusting after the beauty of a man or a woman? Well, let me use uh, this as an example. I may look at your new car and I may admire the appearance, the craftsmanship, and the technology of your new car. And that's fine. But when I move beyond mere appreciation of your car and begin to desire your car and imagine myself driving down the highway in your car or owning your car, I have removed myself from a mere appreciation of the beauty of your car to lusting after the beauty of your car. Whereas desiring a model, <clears throat> I 
Whereas desiring a model of car like yours may not be sinful, as long as the desire is not excessive and as long as, as I can wait in God's good time to purchase a car like yours, desiring the very car that belongs to you to the point that I don't care how I get it, even unlawfully get it, my desires become a sinful lust for your car. The same is true with people. When we move beyond an acknowledgement of someone's beauty and begin to desire the wife or the husband of another or someone who is not our husband or wife, because of his or her beauty, or our desires exceed that which is lawful, so that we begin to imagine ourselves in intimate situations with that person, which is only lawful with one spouse. We are likewise lusting after that person because of his or her beauty. This lust for the beauty of another to whom we are not married may be manifested toward those whom we personally know, with those whom we may be personally acquainted. Or it may be directed toward those whom we do not know at all. <clears throat> How the movie and the music industry seeks to cultivate these lustful desires in fans for celebrities they have never met. You can hear it in the emotions and in the expressions of fans as they describe their lust for their stars by referring to, to her as a fox or to him as a hunk and, and on and on go the expressions. Lust for one to whom we are not married is viewed so often as being harmless by the world in which we live. Look, but do not touch, we are told. What that really means is lust but do not touch. And that is contrary to the Tenth Commandment. Children and adults alike begin to lustfully fantasize a life with their favorite sex god or sex goddess. These are not innocent desires, dear ones, but flow from our own evil desires of the flesh. The temptations to promote lust within us come at us and we all know, they come at us from many different directions. It is so important that we recognize, that we are alerted to, that we are uh, aware of the various directions from which these lustful temptations come. If we would see significant victory over lust in our lives. From the revealing photos of women on magazines at the counters we check out of the store, to the nearly naked women in bathing suits on internet sports pages, from the explicit pornography in magazines that are usually placed behind the counter, and that one will find on videos and in certain movies to the scantily clad men and women, even in the Sears catalog, from billboards along the highway, to the explicit sexual phone lines and sexual lyrics in lascivious songs, 
we can find various temptations continually bombarding us. And we don't even need those types of temptations for our mind to run, uh, run wild. Once we have been exposed to these things, and again, even if we have never been exposed to those things, our corrupt nature can carry us away with desires to such an extent. But I think it's very important that we recognize where these temptations in a more physical, visible way come from. We'll say more about that in the second part, to the, answering the second question. Dear ones, I would submit to you that none of us are invincible to these, intemp to these temptations should we choose to flirt with them. We cannot play with fire without being burnt sooner or later. Consider what Proverbs 6 verse 27, just a couple verses after our text says, in the same context, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? can't play with the passion and the fire of lust and not be eventually burnt. How many ministers have been led into adulterous affairs and relationships because they did not take heed to the various temptations to lust in their lives, but rather entertained and toyed with those seemingly harmless, sinful desires. But dear ones, that is the very nature of lust. It begins with a seeming, controllable spark of sinful desire. Just a small spark. It so often grows into a mighty forest fire until it destroys countless lives by its uncontrollable flames of passion. How I have heard and read of ministers or salesmen who are professed to be Christians as well, who do much traveling from one city to the next, who are speaking in various cities, and whose work does carry them to various situations where they must spend nights away from home, nights in hotels and in motels. These men being ensnared by their lust while in the privacy of their hotel room with pornographic movies or magazines, or while stepping out to grab a bite to eat. They give in to their lust by visiting a strip joint. Dear ones, if David, a man after God's own heart, could fall into an adulterous affair due to lustful desires for Bathsheba, or Solomon, the wisest man upon the earth, could fall into lustful desires for women in multiplying wives and concubines to himself, then are we not all susceptible to falling in the same area? Every one of us? God warns us that we should never proudly say, that could never happen to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God tells us very clearly, and he warns us, <clears throat> Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Lest he fall. <clears throat> God, dear ones, is no respecter of persons. Minister, elder, salesman, nurse, or housewife, male or female, young or old, dear ones, if we sneer at God's law, the commandment that God prohibits, lust, and thus treat the God of our salvation with scorn, 
and sin against his grace by willfully disobeying him. We will certainly be crushed by heartache and woe as one who sneers at the law of gravity and jumps from a jet without a parachute. We will suffer the consequences of that sin. Whether our unabated lust issues forth in our behavior or not, it is polluting our thoughts, imaginations, and desires and making us even unfit to, to think one pure thought that one can become so consumed with these lustful desires that it's almost impossible to think a clean thought. Once those pornographic images that we have willingly looked upon become implanted in our memory bank, they will flash before our eyes almost without warning from out of nowhere. It is so easy, dear ones, to look at pornography, but it is nearly impossible to remove it from our memory. It is harder than trying to remove the scent of a skunk that has sprayed your clothing or your car. It continues to haunt even the repentant Christian who has indulged in pornography, even after he or she confesses it as sin and seeks the forgiveness of God. We may be free to sow seeds of wicked lust in our minds, but we are not free from reaping the lustful crop which we have sown. God will forgive, but so often we will not forget for a very long time. How often, dear ones, even Christians begin down the road of pornography thinking they will indulge themselves just this one time, and then they will be able easily to quit whenever they choose to quit. But the lustful appetite, dear ones, is not so easily quenched by feeding it just once. It wants more, and it wants more. It is never satisfied, dear ones, until it has destroyed our lives and our marriages. Consider what is said in Proverbs 27, verse 20. Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Never satisfied. Until it has reduced us to poverty in every way, it will not be fully satisfied. <clears throat> to indulge only once in satisfying our lustful desires, I would submit to you, dear ones, is one time too many. One time too many. Now before moving on to the last main point, I would pause to ask you some questions upon which to reflect. Listen and meditate upon these questions, dear ones, in your own heart. Contemplate them. Consider them very seriously. First of all, are you who are married faithful to your spouse in the way you look and think about other men and women? When you have a problem with your husband or wife in whatever area in your marriage, do you ever wish you could be with another man or with another woman? 
That is to violate the Tenth Commandment. It is to sin against God. It is to sin against your spouse. A second question. Are you who are unmarried being faithful to your future spouse, whomever he or she may be, in the way you look and think about men and women presently? Do you seek to treat those of the opposite gender as your brothers and as your sisters, or rather as lustful toys for your imaginations and desires? Thirdly, when you see an attractive man or woman, do you find yourself not only acknowledging their beauty, their good looks, but also indulging and gratifying the lusts of your flesh as well? Fourthly, do you seek to live a life of integrity where you endeavor by God's grace to live the same life before your husband and wife as you do when you are alone? You remember last Lord's Day we spoke of living a life of integrity from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7. That is, living a consistent life, not having a double standard, not living one way before your husband or wife or other people, members of the congregation, and living entirely different when you're all by yourself. What characterizes your life? Fifthly, do you not only know with your mind, but practice with your eyes and with your ears that God sees all and knows all that you do in private and that nothing escapes His sight? Nothing escapes His sight. Does it really matter to you, dear ones, that the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered to put away the sin of lust sees and knows how you fulfill the lusts of your flesh in secret. Does it matter to you? Do you care at all? But Christ thinks, who sees it all and knows it all. Fifthly, do you practice a double standard in which you act as though it is okay to look, which we said is a code word for to, to lust, but not to touch? Is that your standard? Is it okay to look but not to touch? Dear ones, we may all be very thankful to the Lord that he has restrained us, and that's to whom the credit and glory should go, not to ourselves. That he has restrained us from fulfilling the various sinful desires of our heart so that we have not acted out what we have thought in our minds. All glory belongs to God for his restraining power. But that is no reason not to see those sinful desires to, to be sinful and equally deserving of the condemnation of God as are the actions themselves. And the last question that I would put to you before looking at the second main point is this. Do you not only seek to avoid falling into temptations to lust, but are you as conscientious to avoid becoming a temptation or an occasion to lust by what you wear and by what you adorn yourself. For when what we wear, dear ones, draws attention to certain parts of our body that ought not to be exposed, that ought to be hidden, either by how tight they are worn and fit our bodies, or by actually exposing those parts that ought to be hidden, 
we have wittingly or unwittingly become a seducer to our brothers or to our sisters in Christ. I would also caution against going to the extreme that some have gone to in believing that modesty would require that every part of one's leg, every part of one's arm, every part of one's neck, or every part of one's hair ought to be covered. For if one was to be absolutely consistent with that view, one would also have to cover one's face, one's eyes, because in this very text, it is the eyes, it is the eyes, the eyelids, that Solomon says that the young man is not to take heed to, the eyes of the woman, the, her eyelids. And in such a case, to be absolutely consistent, women should then, if that is what is required, should cover their whole face. And not only women, but men as well, because women could just as well find something attractive and lust after some, something on a man's face that every one of us ought to cover our faces and have a peephole that we can gaze through. So there are extremes to which we certainly can go, which I believe the law of God does not require us to go there, though. The second question is this. What are we to do in order to avoid lust? Now we get to how do we overcome it? We've, we've gone into great detail about the problem of lust. We have seen what it deserves. We can see how, how it destroys the lives of those who fall into it. But God does not leave us there, praise be to his most holy name, but he does give to us his grace. He does give to us his promises. He does give to us instruction as to how we can overcome these lustful desires in our lives. Not perfectly, not sinlessly, not flawlessly, but to a large degree have victory in this area of our life, even while yet dwelling here upon the earth, but looking forward to that final day when in body and soul, after the resurrection, we will be forever set apart from these corrupt natures and those evil desires. <clears throat> Solomon speaking by inspiration of the Holy Spirit exhorts us in Proverbs 6.25, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. You see, dear ones, we are commanded to take action in order to avoid the lust we have for the beauty of one to whom we are not married. We're commanded to do something, not to be idle, not to simply allow that lust to overwhelm us, not to simply allow it to carry us along the stream as if we were just a small piece of wood and it directs us in any direction that it would take us. We are commanded by the Lord to do something that we might be rescued from this burning building of lustful desire. What can be done? Well, I have two things to say. What must the unbeliever do, first of all, and then we'll consider what must the believer do. What must the unbeliever do who realizes that he is caught in this burning building of lustful desire? The unbeliever 
Dear ones, must come to Christ confessing his total inability to overcome the sinful desires of his flesh. Whereas he is corrupted and polluted in his very nature by sin, he must look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who was conceived and born not with a sinful nature, but with a sinless nature, with a perfect nature. He must not only look by faith alone to the righteousness of Christ in his keeping the perfect law of God in his actions, but also look to the, the perfect righteousness of Christ in desiring only that which was righteous all of his life. You see, in his keeping of the law, he not only kept the first nine commandments, which deal specifically or primarily with our actions and with our words, but he perfectly kept the tenth commandment, which deals with all desires, with all the attitudes, with all of the thoughts. And he perfectly kept the law of God in all those areas. Why? Well, because certainly he's God. But as a human being, he did so in order to fulfill the covenant of works which we had broken. That we might have a surety. That we might have a substitute. One who kept the law for us in these areas. So that we might cast ourselves upon him and his righteousness that we by faith may be forgiven all of those sins, not only of word and deed, but of desire as well. And that we might be imputed, credited, the perfect righteousness of Christ, not only his righteousness as it pertains to his words and his deeds, but as to his desires. All of that is credited to our account in that heavenly court when we embrace Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. God accomplishes that for us, not because we deserve it, not because, because we have the ability to do so. He gives us the ability. He gives us the faith. And we simply receive with an open hand what Christ has accomplished and worked for us in fulfilling the covenant of works for us. Dear ones, if such were not the case, as I've just described it, we could never, ever escape the just condemnation of God's law in this life. Because even after we have been regenerated and a new principle of life has been implanted within us by God, by His sovereign grace, by His free grace, our natures continue to be infected by corruption. You see, that's the difference in 1 John in the first chapter there, we read what appears to be simply at first reading perhaps that John is being redundant. When he says in 1 John 1.8, if we say, and he's not just speaking to unbelievers, he's speaking to believers here. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's verse 8. And then verse 10 he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Well, what's the difference? John is saying in verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, if we say that we have no sinful nature, if we say that the remnants of corruption do not yet reside within our nature, within our desires, then we've just fooled ourselves. 
John says, because that even continues in the life of a Christian, of a saint. And that's why then he goes on to cover another base. Not only our nature, not only our desires and our affections in verse 8, but also our actions and our words in verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned in action, in act, or in word, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so in both regards, we are condemned if, in fact, we have not been forgiven the sin of a corrupt nature as well as the sin of our words and our deeds. And if we have not been imputed the righteousness of Christ and His righteous desires and His righteous and holy nature as well as the righteousness of His words and His deeds, we will fall flat on our face and we will perish everlastingly if God had not accomplished that on our behalf. Dear ones, the unbeliever must, by God's grace, not look to any qualifications or righteousness or works or merits in himself, but must see himself completely unqualified, ungodly, and undeserving of the least blessing from God, and rather look to the Lord Jesus Christ alone, to his righteousness alone to Christ's free offer of salvation alone as the sin, sinner's only warrant, as the sinner's only qualification, as the sinner's only righteousness, as the sinner's only merit, as the sinner's only hope of eternal salvation. And that's why we have many invitations in the scripture extended to those who have not come to Jesus Christ to embrace him alone for eternal salvation, like the one we find in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, a universal invitation to all who hear. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price is freely offered. There's nothing that any of us can do but simply come. And when it says buy without money, that simply is referring to the exercise of our faith, which God gave us in our regeneration, exercising that faith in Jesus Christ. Not looking to ourself, not seeing, am I regenerated? Therefore, I place faith in Jesus Christ, simply recognizing your need. Are you famishing? Are you starving spiritually? Jesus says, come to me and simply receive the table that is set. And I will give drink and I will give food that will nourish for all eternity. Well, what must the believer do in closing today? We've considered what the unbeliever must do. What must the believer do to overcome lustful desires? <clears throat> and I will give to you several things I believe very helpful that the believer must do. And I would first say that the believer must come to Jesus Christ as well. He must not come in order to be justified if he has already been justified because justification is not something to be repeated. We are justified once and for all before God. 
But he must come to Christ as his righteousness, as his power, and as his sanctification. Without Christ, dear ones, as a Christian, we can do nothing upon our willpower. That's all that we're leaning upon. We'll find ourselves flat upon our face. The Lord Jesus did not die simply to secure our justification, dear ones, but also to secure our sanctification from sin as we gradually grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ throughout this life. The power that raised up the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that has secured for you, dear struggling Christian, today. That you might overcome those lusts of the flesh that so easily beset you. The holy nature and the holy affections which belong to Jesus Christ and which were imputed to you by faith at your justification are the blessings which the Holy Spirit applies now gradually to you throughout your entire life in your sanctification. You are therefore, dear ones, no matter how much you may be struggling as a Christian, dear ones, you are not dead in the water. You are not dead in the water. You are not deserted nor defeated. You are not a victim, but rather you are a victor through Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. Beloved, by God's grace, you can significantly over time quench the evil desires of your lust through Jesus Christ. This may have been the very sin, dear ones, of which Paul speaks that he himself struggled with in Romans chapter 7, verse 7 and following, where he specifically refers to the sin of lust, the sin of breaking the Tenth Commandment. And he talks about this sin that he has such a difficulty overcoming he wills to overcome it, but the doing of it he can't seem to accomplish. But here is our hope, dear ones, in Romans chapter 7. As you read that section, here is our hope. In verse 24 he says, first of all, acknowledging his desperate situation as a believer, as a Christian, with the struggle of this particular sin, O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? You hear his cry, his desperate plea. But then, the next verse, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Victory is through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why we can begin with such a note of victory in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because of his work of righteousness on our behalf, there is no condemnation to us, though we struggle. And we must continue to struggle. We can't simply cave in. We can't simply allow ourselves to be overwhelmed and do nothing. But as we continue to war against the, 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 the lust of our flesh, leaning upon the Lord, we can cast ourselves upon Christ and his righteousness and know that there is no condemnation to us no matter how hard we struggle, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus.
I would suggest to you the following practical steps to avoid lust in our lives as Christians. First of all, these first few I think would be fairly obvious. Call upon the Lord to help you, realizing that it is His power alone and not your own that can overcome the lust of the flesh. Call upon the Lord. Secondly, pray for Christ to give you a holy hatred for lust and all temptations that lead to lust. A holy hatred that you despise those temptations and those sins to lust. Thirdly, meditate upon the promises of God in which he promises as in Hebrews chapter 13 verses 4 and 5 marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge now look at what he goes into immediately after saying that let your conversation be without covetousness now is he just talking about covetousness in a very general nature or does it have something to do with the previous verse I would submit to you that it does have something to do with the previous verse. That kind of covetousness, which we would call lust. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The Lord will be with us throughout our whole struggles with these particular desires. But we are to cast ourselves upon his promise. Fourthly, do not place yourself, dear ones, in a continual, never-ending cycle of moment by moment confessing each and every lust of which you are aware to God if the problem becomes very serious. This may seem contrary to what you would normally think is our duty and obligation. But rather, I would encourage you to go before God as his adopted child in the morning and in the evening, confessing your lust to him and seeking his paternal forgiveness. Otherwise, one who has a serious problem with lustful desires may not be doing anything but confessing his sin of lust every moment of every day and making no progress in his growth in Jesus Christ. But continually, rather than looking to Christ, and the power of Christ, he is continually focusing upon his failure and his sin before God and losing all hope and falling into despair. Set aside a time or times, morning and evening, I would suggest, in the course of the day to deal if it becomes a very serious problem. But do not focus moment by moment by moment by moment throughout the whole day upon those evil and wicked desires. This becomes so counterproductive in our lives as Christians if we do so. Rather, I would encourage when a lustful desire comes, learn to be aware of it, true, and to, if possible, remove it immediately from your mind by replacing it with a holy desire, with a holy word, or with a holy deed or act. In other words, when those lustful desires come, replace it with something. Count your blessings before God. Enumerate the many things that you have to be thankful for. And when you begin to focus your attention upon that for which you are thankful, guess what? You're not going to be thinking about those evil and wicked desires that have beset you. Or rather, begin to pray for the needs of those within the body of Christ. Pray for the ministry of the church. 
Do something. Don't be inactive or idle. Write a letter to encourage somebody. Pick up the phone and call them to encourage them as a brother or sister. And apply your mind to your study and to your calling and vocation and be active in your work and get busy. Exercise, even your bodies, with great vigor. In other words, do something by God's grace. Don't simply be idle. A fourth, I'm sure, uh, a sixth, I should say, a sixth way to, uh, to avoid lust. Avoid, dear ones, known occasions of temptation, if at all possible. Whether magazine stands, strip joints, internet sites, seductive movies, songs or books, perhaps the beach at certain periods of time, or a pool or a lake at certain periods of the day, because of the scantily clad people that might be there. Avoid staring at seductive or flirtatious people, glaring at them, looking them over. There are things that you can do to avoid temptation with your eyes. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, if your eye offends you, what are you to do? Pluck it out. He's saying so figuratively. In other words, remove yourself from the sight of those particular occasions to lust. So that you can't see them, if at all possible. That's plucking out your eye, figuratively. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.22, to the young men, young people, but also very appropriate to all of us who are older, avoid or flee youthful lusts. Run from them like Joseph. Whom Potiphar's wife sought to seduce. He didn't stick around to the very last moment. He got out of there. He plucked out his eye, spiritually or, or figuratively. He got out of her sight. First Thessalonians 5.22, we are commanded to avoid all appearance of evil. Seek to avoid all appearance of evil. A seventh a seventh step to take. Ask someone you trust to help you be accountable in avoiding all known occasions to lust. Ask another brother or another sister to help you so that you can be accountable to them and say, this is what I've done this week. And they can check up on you and they can, they can by God's grace, try to keep you accountable in those areas. That you know you have to not only answer to God, but there's someone you're going to have to answer to every week. That will be very helpful as well. Uh, then uh, eighthly, make a covenant with your eyes before the Lord, according to Job 31.1. Job said that he had made a covenant with his eyes. Enter into a covenant with God that you will seek by God's grace to avoid all occasions, to avoid all occasions, temptations to lust, not placing yourself in the pathway of lust, full temptation. And finally, never forget, I end on this, never forget that Christ is your righteousness. And he is interceding in heaven for you, dear ones, at that very moment in which you are struggling so much with that lustful desire 
and he's interceding in heaven for you that your faith not, not fail. He intercedes for you if you have failed. He intercedes for you at all times that you not be drawn away from him that you continue to be his dear child. I encourage you to not place yourself back under the covenant of works to overcome lust. You will certainly fail by trying to keep the law in order to please God, by trying to keep his commandments in order to be justified before him. Don't place yourself back under the covenant of works. You will fail. Look to Christ who has already fulfilled for you all all the demands of God's most holy and righteous law. Cast yourself upon him and receive by faith the holy affections already purchased for you by Christ. You see, he's already purchased for us those holy desires. They're in an account for us as it were in heaven. And by faith, trusting in Christ and his righteousness, we withdraw what has been deposited into our account in heaven, those holy desires and affections as we trust in him. Your faith in Jesus Christ, dear ones, according to God's word, shall not overcome the world, but has already, in Christ, your faith has already overcome the world, has already overcome the sinful lusts of the flesh, because Jesus has overcome the sinful lusts of the flesh. There's our victory. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, this time we cast ourselves upon our Savior, for we are weak and frail, and we fall throughout the day in these various lustful desires. All of us are but but human beings who have a corrupt nature, even though we have already had implanted within us those holy principles which are growing and bringing about conformity to Jesus Christ. But nevertheless, we have the remnants of that corruption yet in our lives. And we do look forward to that day when all of this corruption in our soul and in our, in our nature will be forever removed, where we'll, we will be holy where we will, Father, no longer have those wicked lusts and desires. We praise Thee, our God, that Thou hast accomplished our redemption through Jesus Christ and applied it unto us through Thy Holy Spirit. And we do this day, our Father, place ourselves and continue to place ourselves under the covenant of grace and remove ourselves consciously from the covenant of works our Father, we thank Thee for the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, 
the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan hard drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books, MP3s, and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.